ESPN Radio. said for years that Tiger doesn't move the needle. He is the needle. Now everything is focused on how do I get myself into a position where I'm on that back nine on Sunday with a chance. ESPN Radio. Tiger Woods is through 11 holes on day two of the Masters. An up and down day for the 15-time PGA champion, but he does remain in the mix to make the cut headed into the weekend. This is ESPN Radio on the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, and streaming live on ESPN. Plus, ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Along with Amber Wilson, I am Courtney Cronin. We are keeping you company all the way up until 7 p.m., Eastern time and let's head down now to Augusta National where Mark Schlebaugh ESPN senior writer joins us on the Canty call-in line. Mark, we saw Tiger Woods find his swing there on the 10th fairway the first time he birdied the 10th hole since 2013 but then he recorded his fifth bogey of the day on 11. What's been the reaction as Tiger has kind of battled the ups and downs of day two at Augusta? Well, you certainly couldn't have gotten off to a worse start. Bogeyed four out of the first five holes, was uh, three over after four. Um, seemed to get things right on six and seven. They had made a good swing on number six off the tee, birdied number eight, came back with a birdie on number 10, um, you know, and, and just a bad chip shot on number 11. And then on 12, he uh, had too much club and, and hit it over the green back onto the bank, and he was fortunate that it came back and landed in a, a greenside bunker. Now, Mark, uh, Tiger's and just, not the and he just chipped, and he just chipped out short. So. Oh goodness! Uh, so Tiger's not the only one, Mark. Obviously, struggling today with these greens, and they are playing soft, uh, and they are drenched. Mm-hmm. How much of this do you think with Tiger is the conditions, and how much of it is what he's gone through physically? I think it's got to be a little bit of both. I mean, wind's howling 20, 30 miles an hour, Gus, maybe 35 miles an hour. Um, you know, it's the first time in more than 17 months that he's played two days in a row, uh, 18 holes, tried to play 18 holes two days in a row. You know, I'm sure he's stiff. He was doing some stretching on the first tee. You know, you've seen it the last two days. He's not bending over as much to read putts and is, and is being cautious. But, um, you know, he's hit the driver better today. I think he's been more consistent off the tee. His putter bailed him out a lot on Thursday, and, and he's missed a few today. So I think that's why the score is a little bit higher. But, um, you know, he's in the mix. He's still two on the right side of the cut. If he can make the weekend, you know, he might have a chance because he's got experience playing in these kinds of conditions at Augusta National. Mark Schlebaugh, ESPN senior writer, joins Courtney Cronin and Amber Wilson here on ESPN Radio. Mark, before I let you go, we've talked so much about Tiger Woods. We've had separate streams on ESPN Plus dedicated to his groups uh, in Augusta, at Augusta National. Scotty Scheffler, though, the world number one right now, he is still in the lead. He's through nine. Um, what, what's impressed you the most in these first two rounds from Scheffler as he tries to hold on to the lead? I mean, he's the hottest player on the planet with three wins after he couldn't win at all. Um, he's had good success here in his first two starts. You know, he, he never seems to be 
flustered by the big stage. I mean, you look at the the leaderboard. You've got, um, you know, Scheffler's up there. DJ, who's got a green jacket. My, uh, Hideki Matsuyama, the defending Masters champion, who came in with a stiff neck. Um, you know, there's there's a bunch of guys in contention. Scheffler four under. Uh, through the first two rounds at the Masters. He's still on the course. He's through 10 right now, and he's one under today. Mark, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you all. Have a good weekend. You too. That is Mark Schlebaugh, ESPN senior writer, who is providing live up-to-date coverage from the Masters over on ESPN.com. Baseball is back. Be sure to tune in tomorrow as the Yankees host the Red Sox. Coverage begins at 3.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app. So the Philadelphia 76ers last night faced a team that they are matched up currently with in the first round of the playoffs in the Toronto Raptors. And we found out last night, Amber, that if they face the Toronto Raptors in the first round of the playoffs, there's no evidence to suggest that this is going to be a cakewalk for the Philadelphia 76ers, a team that has potentially the MVP in Joel Embiid, uh, James Harden. I mean, they have they've struggled. And they've been up and down here throughout the end of March and into early April. And this troubled Sixers team, you know, had an early 15-point deficit. Uh, they, they had a 15-point lead, which Toronto was able to erase. And Toronto earns that 119-114 win. Pascal Siakam posted a 37-point triple-double. Gary Trent Jr. scored 30 points. I mean, Joel Embiid himself had a pretty good game, 30-10. and 10. Um, But I worry about this 76ers team, and it makes me feel like the inconsistencies that they've shown from James Harden shooting all the way to their rotation and the depth that they've lacked because it all went to the Nets uh, in the trade. It makes me think that they might be at actual risk of losing to the Raptors in the first round. And on top of that, too, Matisse Seibel, if, it, if the games are in Toronto, is not going to be able to play because he is not vaccinated. Or seemingly so, right? I don't know if we know that officially, but it seems like it because he wasn't able to play in that game. Uh, yeah, and, and that's going to be the case for, you know, probably numerous teams in the NBA. There's going to be somebody uh, who's not going to be able to play in Toronto. But as great as Thibel is, like, that can't be what your success comes down to if you're the Philadelphia 76ers. What their success has to come down to here is Joel Embiid, but also James Harden. I mean, you mentioned it. Joel Embiid, 30-10 and 10 last night. Like, he's, he's phenomenal this season. But James Harden has been wildly inconsistent here down the stretch. It is still the regular season. So I'm not going to freak out if I'm a 76ers fan. But 13 points last night, four rebounds, you know, 15 assists, fine. But with James Harden, it's just unreliable in terms of what you need from him. I'm not saying he's ever terrible out there, but him being inconsistent down the stretch doesn't really incite much confidence, Courtney, because we also know the reputation of James Harden where he might disappear in the postseason or he might disappear when it matters most. Now, given at times earlier in his career when we're having those conversations it was a different scenario when he was with Houston than it is now and different in terms of the weight that he was shouldering. He does have Joel Embiid here to lean on with this team, but Joel Embiid needs more help out there than just Tyrese Maxey, who had another great game last night. But you can see it. They still didn't have enough to get past the Raptors. I do think in part what's happening here is that I, I think that the Raptors have been a bit overlooked and overshadowed all season. Like I do think that Raptors team is better than people give it credit 
credit for, particularly with Siakam. Mm-hmm. But that can't be a disappearing act from James Harden. It ha- he's going to have to step up night in and night out. And if you're a 76ers fan, I don't know if you have much confidence that you're going to get that from him in the postseason. Yeah, and on the flip side of that, too, I mean, you mentioned Pascal Siakam and all that his, he's contributed to the Raptors this year. Like, they have a Rookie of the Year candidate in Scotty Barnes. I mean, mm-hmm. he's played – terrific basketball down the stretch here of the regular season and I think that if you're the Philadelphia 76ers knowing that you used a nine-man rotation on Thursday night that's no that's no knock it's just trying to figure out how do you overcome some injuries that you're dealing with some absences uh with with, um you know potentially related to COVID if you you know, are going up to Toronto to play in these games and you don't have a Matisse Thibel who they said uh, they didn't give like a specific reason as to why he was out. It wasn't like due to COVID-19, but I think that we can infer there, there might be some vaccination issues. Um, But again, like you just worry about the 76ers team and the pressure that's now on James Harden to go deliver a championship after he forced his way out of Brooklyn and didn't feel like he could win one there. Like, wouldn't it be something? If Brooklyn ends up, you know, cruising the rest of the way through the season against the Cavs tonight and then the Pacers on Sunday, they clinch the seven seed, they get into the playoffs and they make it further Then this Philadelphia 76ers. What's the conversation going to turn to then surrounding James Harden? Not a good one. The conversation for Harden is going to turn to, you know, I want Mike D'Antoni as my head coach and and not Doc Rivers. Like, that's going to be the conversation from Harden's side. But I do think that the conversation for everybody watching is going to probably be James Harden, unless somehow he has a phenomenal postseason and Joel Embiid doesn't show up, and that's why the 76ers are not successful. Or they just don't have a supporting cast, but both of those guys are phenomenal, and so they can't be responsible for that because apparently all their hopes were dashed when they traded away a Seth Curry. Like, that would be the only type of thing where, like, maybe we don't have that conversation about James Harden. But I do think that because of where he's at, Courtney, where he's finally where he forced himself to be after all of these stops, that at this point in James Harden's career, the pressure is is very much on Harden. I think it's on Doc as well, but I think it's also very much on Harden. 76ers finish out the season. They've got the Pacers on Saturday, and then they've got the Pistons at home on Sunday. And honestly, they better be praying that they don't face the Raptors in the first round of the playoffs because this is not a friendly matchup. They are currently seeded as the fourth seed in the Eastern Conference playoffs, and Toronto is the five seed. But if they can win these next two games, if Toronto can slip a little bit here, that's going to be a better matchup for Philadelphia all the way around because this Toronto team is dangerous, as we've seen in mm-hmm. previous years of the playoffs. Yes, they are a different team. DeMar DeRozan is not there anymore. Uh, it's a completely different makeup, but I worry about Philadelphia, and I worry about the consistencies or the lack thereof with someone like James Harden and what Joel Embiid is going to have to shoulder here once this team gets into the postseason. Straight ahead, we stick to the NBA and go over to the Western Conference. Should the Lakers consider moving moving on from Anthony Davis this offseason? We discuss next here on ESPN Radio in the ESPN app. ESPN Radio. This season was never about winning. I've never seen the Laker team lose all these close games in the fourth quarter. We, we couldn't win. They're an atrocity, <laughs> and it starts from the top down. It starts from Jeannie Buss allowing Linda Rambis to have power. It goes from there and disintegrates down to Rob Palenka. I know we have to talk about them because it's LeBron James. We shouldn't be talking about no, them. No, at all. I've been trying to tell you guys, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. Believe them. 
Anthony Davis doesn't think the Lakers are going to trade him, but will that hold up this offseason? This is ESPN Radio on the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, and on ESPN+. Plus. Courtney Cronin and Amber Wilson kicking it with you on this Friday afternoon. We are presented by Progressive Insurance. If you want to get in and talk some Lakers with us, some Brooklyn Nets in their must-win situation tonight against the Cleveland Cavaliers, the number for the Canty call-in line, one say ESPN. That's 888-729-3776. So the basis of this Anthony Davis trade conversation, Amber, is his injury history. That's what we've seen the last three years since the Lakers traded for him and sent a big haul uh, in the other direction to get the eight-time All-Star and four-time All-NBA selection in the fold in L.A. But it hasn't really panned out to what the expectations were, that you pair Anthony Davis with LeBron James and you win a championship. So the conversation of a trade has come up at multiple points this season. And in a conversation with ESPN uh, NBA staff writer Dave McMenamin, Anthony Davis talked about the trade, said he can't control these things. Quote, that's an upstairs thing, a clutch, Rich Paul thing, my agency. My job is to go out and play basketball. Obviously, I love it in L.A. If that's something that they are considering, then we'll have a conversation about it. I don't know what they're talking about. What's the plan? End quote. So the obvious thing here is that the Lakers are probably talking about thinking what the thinking at least what the package could potentially be for Anthony Davis this offseason. Because honestly, till this point, it has not worked out for A.D. in L.A. with LeBron. I think that Anthony Davis is who the Lakers possibly have in terms of actual bargaining power with a trade. This is assuming LeBron doesn't want to be traded because LeBron doesn't have a no trade clause, but I do think you give LeBron James that deference where LeBron's only going to be traded by the Lakers if LeBron actually wants to be traded by the Lakers. So assuming that you are retooling around LeBron this offseason, there's not many ways you can do it, Courtney. Russell Westbrook is going to have to be one of those dominoes that falls, but moving Westbrook contract is going to be very very difficult because he's probably going to opt in he'd be crazy frankly not to opt in and so moving what 47 mil on your books next season is not going to be an easy task unless you you know do something crazy like pay a draft pick with him and there's a reason that the Lakers haven't wanted to do that because they're probably going to be very bad by the end of the 2020s here which is when they have those draft picks and that's going to be we think anyways after LeBron James's tenure and And so the Lakers are going to be in a position where they're going to need their picks then in 2027, 2029. And so if the Lakers are unwilling then to mortgage that far into the future to trade Westbrook, what else could they do? And maybe one of the things that they could do, which would help them also move maybe the Westbrook contract is move Anthony Davis. And now I don't know what you get for Anthony Davis, Courtney, because We all know he's got the durability concerns. We've all seen it. And if we've seen it, so has every other team in the NBA. They've seen it as well. As great as AD can be when he Mm -hmm. is healthy. The big problem is how healthy is he going to be and how available to your team is he going to be? That is going to hamstring, I would imagine, his trade value quite significantly. And so if you're the Lakers, do you trade away a guy who should be a top 10 player in the NBA, but then you can't get much return on him because of the availability concern? At the same time, 
I don't know what else you do. Like, at least if you trade away AD, maybe you can get a draft pick that you pair with Westbrook. That's a sooner draft pick. Maybe you there's some finagling you can do there or, or do some type, type of trade that can kind of move them both and get some stuff in return. But none of this makes sense unless you can actually build around LeBron in a win-now type of scenario with stars who are ready to win now. And there is no easy way to do that, frankly. And it's probably more popular to blame all of the issues or a majority of them that have affected the Los Angeles Lakers this season on Russell Westbrook, but high key Anthony Davis has had a very bad season Mm -hmm. this year. He was a former MVP candidate. He only played in 40 games this year, 23.2 points per game, 9.9 rebounds, 2.3 blocks. That's a pretty impressive stat line. Nonetheless, but he's shooting 18.6% from, you know, from three. That's bad. And I think his defense, like you had mentioned, that hasn't been up to par either. So what can you get for him? He will still command a haul here, and I think you'll get a hefty return because when he's at his best, which we saw at, in moments over these last three seasons yeah, when? with Los Angeles Lakers, um, he's a two-way force. Like there's no, there's no doubt about that. He can dominate an NBA game, and he's 29 years old, so you'd still have reason for optimism that he can get back to that level, but we haven't seen it. If we're going off of reality here, and I do think that you can still command quite uh, quite a return here for the Los Angeles Lakers if you do end up dealing Anthony Davis maybe to a place like the Hornets, um, you know, who could use, you know, some size there and some presence and his presence, or maybe even a place, you know, you I don't know if you'd want to consider sending him anywhere else in the West, but depending upon what the return is of putting shooting around LeBron James, I think you'd have to be AD willing for to Steph listen. Curry. That's what LeBron wants, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's why he was making those comments. He wants you to be I, his GM. You know, we you said we haven't seen it before. I guess we kind of saw it when they, I mean, they did win an NBA title together, right? So I guess, like, if you, hindsight being twenty twenty, like, I guess you have to call it a success, the whole LeBron and AD pairing. But the reason they won that title was because, you know, pandemic year, AD had a whole bunch of time off before they were in the bubble because of the global pandemic and the world shut down. He had a whole lot of rest. He's not going to get that opportunity again and it just feels like that this pairing isn't going to be able to make it work again for a championship because you're not going to have enough of a supporting cast around these guys to your point also how the Lakers used AD where he they they did not construct him to play center full time which ended up being problematic I feel like how they were able to use him even when he was healthy but of course it's very hard to build that way around AD when you know he's in and out of the lineup all the time because he can't stay healthy so I do think that the Lakers have to trade Anthony Davis, but I I do think it's going to be interesting how they're going to go about doing that and what they're going to get in return. Real quick here, before we shift gears to the NFL, I want to hit up the Canty call-in line. James in Utah, who is a Lakers fan, uh, tuning in for the conversation on Anthony Davis. James, 30 seconds. What do you think the Lakers should do with AD this offseason? I I love AD, but he's got to go. You can't have one of your main components play 40 games, you know? It's not going to work. I don't, dis- I don't disagree. I think that that is what the Lakers face this offseason. The question mark of what they can get back in return for Anthony Davis It's not the big one. It's just what do you do to replace what he brought to the team when he was at his best? And how can that help support LeBron James, assuming he's staying in L.A., which he probably should, uh, for the next year or so? in trying to get a championship so we don't have another season where this team is out uh, by the time the play-in tournament comes around. Straight ahead, we're going to attempt to go back-to-back days here on ESPN Radio talking about the NFL draft without mentioning the quarterback. See if we can do it next. This is ESPN Radio.
ESPN Radio. Three weeks from right now, we're going to be gearing up for the second and third rounds of the NFL Draft, a night where a lot of wide receivers could fly off the board. This is ESPN Radio on the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, and on ESPN Plus, Courtney Cronin and Amber Wilson kicking it with you on this Friday afternoon. Our next guest will be part of the aforementioned ESPN's wall-to-wall coverage of the 2022 NFL Draft. He is Field Yates, ESPN NFL Insider and co-host of the First Draft Podcast, joining us here on ESPN Radio. Field, I want to talk about this wide receiver group because we're expecting, yet again, for the third straight year to see double digits of wide receivers go off the board in the first two rounds. How does the free agent group of wide receivers that found new homes, whether they were free agents or whether they were through trades, affect the draft class this year? Well, first of all, great to be on with you guys. And I think what it, what it does, Courtney, is that the teams that traded away those premium wide receivers, specifically the Packers with Devontae Adams and the Chiefs with Tyreek Hill, are all of a sudden buyers in what I think could be a buyer's market in the draft because you're correct that this could be a year where we see 10 or 12 wide receivers go in the first two rounds, and I'm not sure that the gap, once you get past the first few of them, let's call it three specifically, is that wide. You know, if you look at some of the players that I think are more likely to go in the second or third round. As an example, John Mechie, wide receiver from Alabama who tore his ACL in the SEC championship game. Like, I'm not so sure that in a different year, he might not be more like a top 30 pick as opposed to maybe a top 50 or so pick in this year's draft. I think it's got a bit of everything as well. You have different physical profiles amongst the wide receiver prospects. So I think this draft is going to be a night where while it's going to be light on quarterbacks, I think you'll hear a lot of wide receivers hearing their name called called her very, very early. So, Phil, Courtney and I have challenged ourselves here today to not ask you any questions about quarterbacks mm-hmm. as we're talking about the NFL draft. So my palms are sweating, but I'm going to uh, see if I can accomplish that goal. I'm going to ask you instead about pass rushers because most of these mocks have at least the top two or three picks going to pass rushers. Is that more of a testament to how deep this draft is in terms of talent at that position or just the rise in stock of that position generally in the NFL? Yeah, so I know the rules to not bring up the quarterbacks any more than we need to, but I do think that a significant part of that is that there isn't a quarterback that's worth taking. I mean, if this year was rewound one year and we were in the 2020 draft, 2021 draft class with the exact same order, then – and let's assume that the Jaguars had already landed Trevor Lawrence, then I think the next two picks are going to be quarterback, going to the Lions and also the Houston Texans, who I do think have a long-term need um, at, at quarterback, the Lions. I think they feel comfortable with Jared Goff as a, at least a 2022 option. And certainly the Texans are a team that I think would be in the quarterback market if there was a stronger class of prospects available. But there's also a really good group of edge rushers. It's very uncommon to see edge rusher amongst the most, I would say, the deepest positions in the draft. But there is a really good crew this year. And I was saying just a moment ago about how with wide receivers, you kind of have your sort of, uh, you know, you get the taste the rainbow variety. If you want the sort of big, tall, fast receivers in the second round and 
you could get a Christian Watson from North Dakota State if you're looking for a player who's a little more built on his shiftiness and his route running. I mentioned John Mechie. Well, same thing with these pass rushers is that it's not just Aiden Hutchinson and Kayvon Thibodeau and Trayvon Walker. We could see five or six in the first round. Arnold Levichette from Penn State, Boye Mafe from Minnesota, a couple more Big Ten first-round prospects, in my opinion, that could hear their names called the first 32 picks. So I do feel like the edge rusher class is as good as we've seen in quite some time. And I think that's a good thing for the NFL because we learned anything. We know that uh, in the NFL you can never have enough pass rushers and certainly never have enough cover corners as well. Field Yates, host of the First Draft Podcast and ESPN NFL Insider, joins Courtney Cronin and Amber Wilson here on ESPN Radio. The aforementioned Trayvon Walker in Todd McShay's latest mock draft, he has him going to the Detroit Lions at number two, and that's kind of the consensus that we've seen if we do believe that Aiden Hutchinson will indeed be the first player off the board. What's to say that the Lions don't go Kayvon Thibodeau to still address that need at defensive end, but flipping the order here and taking him off the board second overall? Yeah, I wouldn't, you know, I'd say candidly is I've learned, or I, I, I learned a long time ago, and I think that hope, I hope that, that people that consume them get it as well, is that like mock drafts, they're not strictly for entertainment, but they may end up providing more entertainment than reality. It's just really hard to pin down what a team is going to do, especially in a year when I'm not certain who is going to be the first pick in this year's draft. Well, I've seen in Hutchinson as the betting favorite, and I understand exactly why Jacksonville will be motivated to make that move. Like, I wouldn't be surprised. As a matter of fact, as of right now, like, if you were to force me to make a pick, my pick would be Trayvon Walker from Georgia. That's who I think would go number one. I'm not necessarily advocating for or against that. But I could also see an offensive tackle. Uh, but back to Kayvon Thibodeau, Courtney, like, in terms of, like, uniqueness, and raw physical skills, they're undeniable. And I know that Kayvon Thibodeau has been the subject of, um, I don't know, criticism is the right word, but just like some realities about um, how his game has sort of been evaluated, not just this past year, but his entire college career. Maybe he's quote unquote sliding a little bit. I don't think he'll last, I don't think he'll last that long, but um, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if the, the Giants in their second pick have a chance with him I would think that the floor for Kayvon Thibodeau is pick nine where the Seahawks select. But that being said, um, who knows? You know, that's what makes the draft so unique. We've seen guys go higher than we expect, go lower than we expect. But uh, really, really good year to have uh, a need for an edge rusher because there are tons of them available. Phil Yates, ESPN NFL insider, co-host of the First Draft Podcast, on with Amber Wilson and Courtney Cronin here on ESPN Radio. So, Field, I am going to ask you about a position that I don't know if anybody has asked you about uh, so far in terms of this draft talk because you see a whole lot of wide receivers and, and linemen and secondary and all sorts of stuff in the first couple rounds. What you don't see is running backs. So when is the first running back that we're going to see come off the board going to go, whether it's Brees Hall or Kenneth Walker the third or any of these other top prospects? Man, Amber, that's a good question. Um, here's my guess. Late first round, early second round, because I, I sort of feel like that's where I would pin them almost every year, uh, except for when there's a guy who's like clearly going to go in the top 10. And, you know, it's easy for me to say this when I'm not an NFL GM, but I would never use a first round pick on a, on a, on a running back. I, I just, there's way too much evidence to suggest that, heck, 
even last year, right? I mean, Najee Harris was, by some people's estimation, a rookie of the year or, you know, a candidate at the very least by everybody. But, like, I'm not so sure that the Steelers feel as though their running game issues were amended, right? I mean, they went out and spent on multiple players in free agency along the offensive line. They signed two free agents. They retained another of their own and to, like, legitimate money. Um, so, like, you know, what I would say is that there isn't that clear-cut top running back prospect, but I would see – I could see – a, you know, Brees Hall or, to your point, Kenneth Walker going somewhere in the late 20s because maybe a team like Buffalo or maybe a team uh, that has a late pick in the first round, and Buffalo seems to be the, the most obvious contender in this regard, says, you know something, he can come in and be the missing ingredient. They're both good players. I just tend to think that, you know, last year I look back and I look at some of the top running backs amongst the rookie class. I'd argue Elijah Mitchell, a six-round pick, was amongst the best. You saw Ramondre Stevenson, a fourth-round pick really good player. Like there've been enough players, you know, there's, there's Khalil Herbert, six round pick, really good player last year. So I would just preach patience if I were an NFL GM trying to fill my running back need. Well, we did it back to back days where we talked the NFL draft without diving into this year's quarterback class. That deserves another air horn. Can I get another one? Thank you. And uh, we have Field Yates to thank for that. Field Yates, ESPN NFL insider and co-host of the First Draft Podcast, joining Courtney Cronin and Amber Wilson here on ESPN Radio. It's going to be a busy few weeks for you, Field. Appreciate you taking the time. No problem, guys. Have a great rest of the show and great listen. You guys are both on all the time now. I feel like every time I turn on the radio, I see the two. I hear the two of you, so keep it up. Uh, It's always going to be busy, and hopefully there's somebody to talk about besides the NFL Draft. Oh, there is plenty, and there is that's exactly what we're going to get into next because if we're not talking about quarterbacks in the NFL draft, what's the next best thing that makes your head want to explode? NFL players deleting things off of their social media. That's next, ESPN Radio, ESPN app. ESPN Radio. Courtney Cronin, Amber Wilson with you on ESPN Radio. We have another instance where we require our own investigative skills to figure out whether there's anything to 49ers wide receiver Debo Samuel deleting, removing, archiving his Instagram pictures, uh, and he unfollowed the 49ers on social media. As you'll remember, the wide receiver is entering the final year of his rookie deal. He's coming off of a career year where he caught 77 passes for 1,405 yards, six touchdowns. He was also used as a running back in Kyle Shanahan's system rushed 59 times for 365 yards and eight more touchdowns. He's a special player, and he probably thinks now is the time to get paid. Why is that, Amber? Because Stephon Diggs, Buffalo wide receiver, just broke the bank earlier this week, a four-year, $104 million extension with $70 million in guarantees. Like This is a no-brainer to me as I evaluate the situation, putting on my investigative reporter hat here, that Debo Samuel wants to – increase the timeline here, speed it up a little bit to get the San Francisco 49ers to give him what he deems is, you know, a worthy extension for the former second round pick. 
Debo Samuel is just following suit with uh, the Tyreek Hills of the world, right? And the Devontae Adams of the world. And now the Stephon Diggs of the world. The problem for Debo Samuel is, is I don't think he's those dudes who I just said, frankly. But he is a receiver who is entering the final year of his rookie deal. And so that's what's key here. Like He is going to get paid. But he's seeing that money that has reset the receiver market being thrown around. And he feels like it's his turn. And frankly, it is his turn, contractually speaking. The problem is that San Francisco's in a bit of a different situation than they're in in Buffalo when you see this money get thrown around. Where with San Francisco, like who who's throwing the ball to Debo Samuel next year? Like I have no idea. I don't know what San Francisco's doing. I don't know how they're going to look with Trey Lance. I don't know how much he's going to be relied on now in that offense. Uh, I even Mike McDaniel's not there anymore, right? And and it reportedly uh, he was, although uh, Shanahan still is there, he was in part the reason that Debo Samuel was used as much as he was in terms of the game scheming. So I do think that Debo is going to get paid. I don't think that him following or unfollowing the 49ers on social media, frankly, has anything to do with whether he gets paid or not. I think it's where the market is, where it's gone, but most importantly, where he is in his contract. Yeah. And entering, you know, the final year of his rookie deal, this would be the time roughly where teams would engage in those extension talks. But if it's a deal that he doesn't like, he could potentially have some leverage here in forcing his way out via trade. You know, the team like the Jets that just missed out on Tyreek Hill might be in the mix to uh, add another wide receiver this offseason. Straight ahead, can Brian Flores' NFL lawsuit prove a fake interview process plus an update on Deshaun Watson's contract with the Cleveland Browns? ESPN Radio. It was three weeks ago today that Deshaun Watson was introduced as the next quarterback to lead the Cleveland Browns, a lengthy press conference that featured Andrew Barry, the general manager, who did not get into the specifics of Deshaun Watson's five-year, $230 million fully guaranteed contract, but as we find out today in an article from Pro Football Talk, there's some language within that contract that could actually end up protecting the Cleveland Browns in the event that Deshaun Watson is suspended this season or next season. This is ESPN Radio on the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Courtney Cronin, Amber Wilson with you until 7 p.m. So, Amber, since you're a lawyer and uh, you read complicated things that my brain can't seem to understand, there's a written disclosure that is part of this contract, and I'm reading through this article on PFT um, because Andrew Barry was asked whether Watson's fully guaranteed contract would remain fully guaranteed in the event of a suspension. He would not go into the specifics here. Did we learn anything new in regards to that within this article and within seeing the language of the contract? Well, just to be just to be specific, there is a written disclosure made by Watson to the Browns. It is not actually contained in the contract itself. Now, of course, I don't have the contract. I'm relying here on what Pro Football Talk has said that the, that it, the contract includes. Uh, they have reportedly obtained a contract or the copy of the contract itself. What I thought was interesting is that it seems to include a paragraph in it, according to Pro Football Talk, where Watson represents and warrants 
that as of a specific date, he had not been charged, indicted with a crime, any of that. But also it goes on to say that he represents and warrants that he hasn't engaged in any conduct that would subject him to being in charge with any sort of crime or offense. And then it goes on to further say that no circumstances exist that would prevent him from his continued availability. Well, if he's warranting that and then a suspension comes down from the NFL, then that is a whole different ballgame. Or Frank. Frankly, if more women do file criminal complaints, which is a possibility because we know not all the women who have accused Watson have filed criminal complaints against him, or if there's more criminal investigations, you never know where those lead. And then that can also trigger this language in the contract. So basically the long and short of it here, Courtney, and with us not having the written disclosure in front of us, but we assume that that probably pertains to the 22 civil lawsuits and the allegations against him. The long and short of it is what I'm taking away from this report from Pro football talk is basically that the Browns maybe protected themselves more than we initially thought. The 230 million guaranteed might not be quite as guaranteed as it once seemed. Earlier this week uh, in a Texas courtroom, Deshaun Watson was ordered by a judge to reveal whether he had sex with the 18 massage therapist who issued statements in support of him following several criminal complaints that were filed against him. That order was announced in a Texas courtroom on Tuesday. He was also accused by 22 women of sexual misconduct during therapy sessions that occurred in 2020 and 2021. And quickly, and- what that means to me as a lawyer is that it is far more likely now that Deshaun Watson might be encouraged to settle, where mm-hmm. both these sides have been saying the whole time we're not settling we're not settling. everybody says that um in civil cases and the fact is you know most everybody settles and Deshaun Watson has been saying this whole time he's not going to well there hasn't necessarily been reasons for him to uh him having to if if this goes through now whether they appeal this uh ruling by the court or not we'll see but frankly I think that it would be upheld and I think eventually Watson would probably have to answer this request for admission which is asking him if he did have sex with the women and so maybe if you're Watson you don't want to admit that or you know in open court because also that can factor into this whole NFL suspension factor can the commissioner suspend you because you're admitting to certain behavior that could be a conduct a violation with their policy in the NFL so then that leads to a suspension so that further triggers this language in the contract so long story short it is possible that because of this ruling that maybe Deshaun Watson ends up in a situation where he's more likely to settle so that he doesn't have to make that admission. It'll be really interesting to Mm -hmm. see as this goes forward. But basically what's interesting about this, I think to people is that you just see how these things progress in civil court. These are the things that can happen that sort of change the game or change the scenario or maybe change how a defendant might otherwise operate. And we know that he has 30 days to comply here. So we'll find out soon uh, what ends up happening. I'm, I'm curious though, why would a judge make a ruling like that for Deshaun Watson? Well, so you have discovery in cases and what you have is interrogatories and requests for admission, which is basically uh, just questions asked by the opposing side of you. And you have to admit you're admitting under oath, of course, against penalties of perjury, uh, these things or not or denying these things and whatever. And so basically this is part of that discovery process where they're trying to find out that information. And so the lawyer representing the women are saying, hey, this is pertinent to the case because this shows a behavior, a pattern of 
behavior that Watson, well, this was their argument, that Watson was not getting these massages for the sake of massages, but for something much different than that. And so that's where we're at. And the judge so far seems to have agreed with that decision. And that might play into, um, as you mentioned, the NFL's personal conduct policy and potentially the suspension and what would uh, affect his contract containing exception to typical club protections in the language.